Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. I think I can say with some confidence that probably everybody here in this room this morning has in some way or another been affected by divorce. Uh, Maybe you yourself have been divorced. You could be going through a divorce even right now. Maybe your parents were divorced. Maybe your husband's parents or your wife's parents have been divorced. Maybe you've had a son or a daughter who's been divorced. Maybe a brother, sister, or friend. As you know, and perhaps you've heard, it's a very common statistic that is talked about very much that says that as many as 50% of marriages in the United States fail. And some like to point out that that is even the rate of divorce within the church. Um, You know, I think there's reasons maybe to question that. It kind of depends what what we mean when we say 50% of Christian marriages fail. Kind of depends on what we mean by Christian marriages. But there has been actually some good news lately. There's been a Heritage Foundation study from last year that found that there's been a 40% drop in the number of divorces since 1979. So some statistics suggest that the divorce rates are actually down, and we rejoice in that. That's, that's good news. But that still doesn't mitigate or lessen the amount of anguish and pain that, abort, uh, that um, uh, divorces have brought to, to a number of people, uh, again, even here in, in this room. Uh, if you've been through a divorce, going through a divorce, or been close to a divorce, um, you know, the, the kind of the guilt and the sense of failure that sometimes comes with this, the concern about a, a reputation that has now been diminished in the eyes of others, a sense of a loss of identity, you're no longer a married person, now a, a divorced person, kind of confused about exactly how to consider yourself. Of course, there's the loneliness that often follows from a divorce, particularly in the church where We're seeking to maintain an image of being righteous and godly people, and then divorce happens, and we wonder if we even have a place among God's people anymore. And we know about the effect on children that divorce often brings, the damage that it often brings to children. I saw um, an article, I remember a few years ago, in a magazine, it was a, a secular music magazine called Blender, and um, the headline of the magazine said, why why is it that today's rock bands are so angry? And uh, in the spread of the story, it showed all these pictures of these lead singers from all these rock bands with just these looks of, you know, rage on their faces. And the article went on to say that in almost every case, these singers had come from divorced families. And very often they would say that their fans hearing the songs that they were singing about the anguish they experienced in divorce, would write them and say, that's my life, thank you so much for the song that you've sung that captures my experience. Well, last week here at New Life, we started a sermon series, Q&A sermon series. We do this pretty regularly every year or year and a half. And today, the question before us is, what is the biblical view of divorce? The way this series works is I... I ask for you to submit questions, and the elders gather them up, and we choose a number of questions to answer. 
And so, uh, again, started last week. We'll be doing this throughout January and a little bit into February. And today's question, again, is this. What is the biblical view of divorce? And the text that I've chosen to address this question is Matthew chapter 19, first nine verses. And what you'll see here is that divorce was an issue not just in our day, but also in Jesus' day. And the Pharisees come to Jesus and present to him a question about divorce. And Jesus gives some very central key teaching about divorce in this passage. Now, divorce is mentioned in uh, the other Gospels, at least in Mark and in Luke as well. Uh, divorce is talked about in 1 Corinthians 7. We're going to be spending a little bit of time there this morning as well, but our primary text is here in Matthew 19. So if you have that, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? There are white paperback Bibles uh, under the chairs in front of you, so if you didn't bring a Bible, I would recommend that you uh, grab one of these and uh, look up the passage. We'll be looking at this pretty carefully. Um, <clears throat> the text is on page 481 of the white paperback Bibles. Matthew 19, verses 1 through 9. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two but one flesh." What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Oh God in heaven, we need your Holy Spirit always. We need your Holy Spirit when we look at your word. And preachers like myself need your Holy Spirit to explain your word. So would you send your spirit to guide the preaching of your word, to um, open eyes to see the truth, to soften hearts to the truth, to clarify any misunderstandings we might have about this issue? I pray, God, that you would guard my tongue and protect me from any misleading or erroneous statements. Uh, bring encouragement, Father, to the hearts of those who are overwhelmed with anguish because of divorce. Bring conviction to those who need to repent in their own marriages. And um, just show us the truth, Lord, about this issue today as your word goes forth. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, here's how I'm going to handle this today. I'm going to uh, seek to just address four groups of people uh, for whom this issue of divorce is, is relevant. So first of all, I'm going to talk to the, the single person who is wanting to get married, and then I'll speak to the married person who might be thinking about divorce. And then thirdly, we'll talk to the divorced person wanting to be remarried, and then lastly, to the divorced person who's already remarried. 
And we'll see what the Scriptures say to each uh, person in those categories. And so the first group that we'll consider here is the single person intending to get married. We've always had a pretty good number of college students, young adults here at New Life, and uh, we just heard about an engagement uh, that has taken place here, and that happens very frequently. Um, I've got four weddings on my calendar for 2017, and so uh, this is something that we're very happy to celebrate here at New Life on a regular basis. Uh, it, it's, it's the case, though, that sometimes divorce happens because those wanting to get married uh, lack wisdom and lack knowledge and make some bad decisions at the outset. And so that's kind of what I have in mind here. If you're thinking about getting married or you're engaged to be married, you're about ready to pop the question, there's some things that you need to know before you go further. And one of those things has to do with what God intends for the permanence of marriage. And so if you look here in verses 5 and 6 in chapter 19, as <clears throat> Jesus is responding to the Pharisees, Jesus quotes the book of Genesis and says, Therefore a man, in verse 5, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Very strong statement there about the ideal that God has in mind for marriage, that marriage should be a lifelong, permanent, faithful commitment between a man and a woman, that it is not something that we should look to get out of when things get difficult or things get uh, hard. It's not an institution that is subject to human invention or revision this is God's idea. God is the one who has the authority to appoint how a marriage starts, what it should look like, and when it ends. And that's what we see here in Matthew 19 as Jesus goes back to the very beginning to say that it's what God has joined together, not what man has joined together. God has done this. He's in charge. Therefore, let us not separate such an important divine institution as this. So an emphasis here on the permanence of marriage. It's always God's intention that marriage should, marriages should not fail. They should be lifelong. Now, what about the meaning of marriage? We don't see Jesus explain a whole lot here about the meaning of marriage. So let me just depart from this text just briefly to show you Ephesians chapter 5 where we get this very profound explanation about the meaning of marriage. And Paul says this, quoting the same passage in Genesis that Jesus just quoted in Matthew 19. He says, therefore, a man <clears throat> shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So that's from Genesis. And now Paul goes on to say this, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What Paul is saying here is that there is a deep, profound meaning about marriage. That is, marriage is about the gospel, is what Paul is saying. Marriage refers to Christ and the church. Marriage should be a picture, an illustration of the gospel. The way husbands love wives and the way wives respect and submit to husbands is a picture of the way Jesus has loved the church and the church responds to Jesus' love. 
So the way a marriage operates sends a message to the world about what the gospel is like. And here's the good news, friends. In the gospel, we have a Savior, Jesus, who loves His bride and is committed to His bride through thick and thin to the very end. We have a Savior who will never break His promise and never break His vows to us. Jesus is committed to us and won't give up on us. He's in it for the long haul. It's a permanent relationship. And that's part of the point here that Paul is making in Ephesians 5. John Piper says it like this, marriage is patterned after Christ's covenant relationship to his redeemed people, the church. And therefore, the highest meaning and the most ultimate purpose of marriage is to put the covenant relationship of Christ and his church on display. I mean, have you ever thought of your marriage that way? The covenant relationship between Jesus and the church is on display in the way you relate to each other. That is why marriage exists. So, <clears throat> to the single person intending to get married, wanting to get married, maybe you, you've been engaged or maybe you're thinking about getting engaged, you got somebody in mind, there are some questions that you need to ask before you tie the knot. You need to ask yourselves, first of all, first and foremost, do you share this conviction? And maybe a previous question needs to be asked, are you both Christians? That's absolutely essential, friends, before you get married, is to make sure that the person you're marrying is a believer in Christ, someone who, who knows he or she is a sinner, who knows he or she needs a Savior, and who trusts in what Jesus has done, his death on the cross and his resurrection, and wants to live for him. If the person you're thinking about marrying doesn't believe that, and you do, you shouldn't be getting married to that person. Other questions you can ask, are we both headed in the same direction in, in our lives? Do we have the same ultimate goals? Do we both agree about the permanence and ongoing nature of, of marriage? A good discussion to have with someone you're thinking about marrying is this, what do you think about divorce? Is divorce ever an option for you? What happens when things get hard? What happens if the day comes when I get in a car accident and I'm a paraplegic? You gonna take care of me? You in it for the long haul? Because that's the ideal that God has set forth for marriage. You can also ask this, do you understand that this marriage is not as much about our happiness, although that's certainly part of it, but it's much more about our holiness? It's much more about what God is doing to sanctify us than it is about our happiness. As we move toward holiness, we will be happy, but holiness is primary over happiness. Are, are you guys sharing that conviction? Well, you share those convictions that I just explained to you, and you can get through a lot of other secondary convictions and issues. You're not going to agree on everything, but you better agree on those things before you get married. You know, I, I want you to know, friends, that it's possible to have a lifelong permanent marriage. It's possible for marriages to last a long time. It's one of the advantages of being part of a healthy church in a community is you can look around and you can see that there are uh, more mature people in the congregation who have held their marriages together. And I talked to a couple actually uh, yesterday. We got Lois and Larry Harding here in our congregation who have been married for 57 years. <laughs> We've got Bob and Barbara Clark right here in front of me who have been married for 68 years, <laughs> still going strong. 
Do you think these guys didn't have some troubles and some challenges and some problems? Of, of course, of course they did. Uh, but as the Clarks told me, they, they came to an understanding of what love is, and love is putting the needs of the other person before yourself, is what Bob said. And that was a secret to his being able to sustain that marriage with, with Barbara. Lois said, uh, for us, it's just always been till death do us part. And that's just always the way it's been. It's just the foundational conviction for us. Larry said, uh, you know, it was just always a pleasure for me to go home. I mean, that's just such a, it's a simple observation, but so profound. That's such a, a wonderful secret to a good marriage, making it pleasurable for the person who's away to come home. You want them to want to come home. Larry wanted to come home, uh, thanks to Lois, and um, that is what God has used to hold those marriages together. So, um, for the single person wanting to get married, these are things you should consider. Now, I think probably most of you understand that. I mean, we all, I don't think anybody really gets married thinking, well, I'll do this for a few years and then I'll get divorced and look somewhere else. I mean, nobody thinks that way, I don't think. But we know it happens, right? It, it, it happens quite often. So what about the married person thinking about divorce? The marriage that is going along, maybe not quite as happy as the Hardings and the Clarks, and so it seems to be coming uh, unbearable, and you're starting to think, I-, I want out. I want out. Well, here, here's a principle that I think is important for us to consider. All divorce is the result of sin in the sense that with both parties involved, sin has been committed, which leads up to the point where one wants to leave. But not all divorce is sinful. Not all divorce is sinful. And in the Scriptures, we have two legitimate grounds for divorce that are given to us. Two legitimate grounds. And the first one is this, sexual immorality, which is given to us here in Matthew 19. So let's look back to the text again. Uh, Again, what Jesus is doing here is answering a question that's been posed to him by the Pharisees. And if you look at verse 7, you'll see um, the Pharisees asking, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? So Jesus has just quoted Genesis and said that marriage should be permanent. And so the Pharisees said what I just read to you. Why did Moses say that divorce was okay. So what the Pharisees are referring to here is a passage in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. We're not going to look at that look at that in great detail, but that's what they have in mind. Deuteronomy 24, and that is a passage that does describe a divorce situation. And the passage actually says or describes a situation where a husband has found something indecent is the word used at least in the ESV in his wife, and so he divorces her. And so uh, there's a number of rabbinical schools, Jewish scribes and scholars, who have spent a lot of time trying to figure out what that word indecency or indecent means. Much debate about that particular word. And um, there are some kind of conservative rabbinical schools and some a little more liberal rabbinical schools. And some of the more liberal rabbinical schools would say that uh, a husband could divorce his wife for basically any reason at all. Just any time he found something in his wife he didn't like, even if it were something as small as spoiling a dish, 
And, and that's a phrase from one of the ancient rabbinical writings. You know, if she burns the casserole, that was enough for a husband to be able to divorce his wife. And if you look at verse 3, you can see that that seems to be what the Pharisees have in mind. So here's the first question the Pharisees ask. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause, for any reason? That's the view the Pharisees seem to, to have, you know. She can't bear children from me. I'm done with her. I don't like the way she dresses today. I'm finished. And so that was a very common view held about divorce. And so I want to just mention this. You know, one of the stereotypes of Christianity and, and the Bible is that it puts upon us these strict regulations and keeps us trapped in these marriage relationships that are so miserable. And I know in some cases it probably feels <clears throat> that way. But I want you to see that what Jesus is saying here is his words, at least in part, are intended to protect women and protect wives. What he's correcting here is this notion that divorce can happen at any time. And so he wants to protect wives from husbands who would divorce their wives for trivial, silly, and improper reasons. And so Jesus' answer to this question can, uh, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And his response to the Pharisees using Deuteronomy 24 as a way of supporting that is to say Moses was not endorsing marriage in Deuteronomy 24. He was not, he was not um, supporting it or commending it. Instead, what Moses was doing in Deuteronomy 24 was just simply offering some instructions that would regulate something that was already happening. Divorce was a reality in Old Testament times, just like it was a reality in Jesus' time and in our day. And so instructions are given for regulating an existing practice. Moses wasn't intending to endorse divorce at all. And if you see in verse 7, um, um, where is it where it says hardness of heart? It's not verse 7. Verse 8, yeah. Verse 8, he said to him, it's because of your hardness of heart that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. So Jesus is just correcting this notion that the Pharisees have that divorce can happen at any time. He says that this is a concession that was made in Old Testament times because people have hard hearts, because people rebel against God. I think we get a lesson that sometimes that very often that's the reason why divorces happen, because of hardness of heart. That's where it comes from. So Jesus goes on and he says, no, divorce for any cause, that, that, that's not the standard. And, and what he goes on to say in verse 9 is actually there's only one legitimate reason. There's one legitimate reason why a divorce could happen. If you look at verse 9, and he says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Spoiling a dish won't do it. Only sexual immorality. That's the only exception. And so, uh, this is what this is called. It's the exception clause. Now, the word here for sexual immorality is the word porneia, and it's the word from which we get our word today, pornography. And there's a, a, a lot of debate and a lot of discussion about what does that word mean? What does porneia mean? And most scholars agree that this word is, is broader than just adultery and can include 
a variety of forms of sexual immorality, including prostitution and homosexuality and incest and bestiality. All of these would qualify. It seems that the principle here is that anything that would violate the one flesh union that is talked about in verse 5, they shall become one flesh. Any activity or behavior that violates that one flesh union in a sexual way is considered porneia or sexual immorality and is therefore a legitimate grounds for divorce. What Jesus is saying is that if that's taken place in your marriage, you're married and your spouse has committed porneia, sexual immorality, that you're free to get a divorce. Now, is this a commandment to get a divorce? Is that your obligation now to get a divorce? And the answer is is no. And in fact, to pursue reconciliation when sexual immorality has taken place in a marriage is a highly commendable thing, a beautiful thing, and pictures the gospel in a very profound and powerful way. I mean, that's what God has done for us, right? I mean, we have cheated on Him in a lot of ways, and in fact, the Bible uses that language very frequently, the language of adultery, to describe our sin. That is, we're married to God, and when we sin, we're kind of committing adultery, and yet He forgives us anyway, sends His Son to die for us. That's at the essence of the gospel. So when a, a married person who's been cheated on loves and forgives, it, it, it's a beautiful thing. It's a good thing. But it's not a necessary thing, according to Jesus. It provides legitimate grounds for divorce. So that's, that's one. That's one legitimate ground. The second legitimate ground is in 1 Corinthians 7. So if you want to keep your finger in Matthew 19 and turn to 1 Corinthians 7, we'll read this. <clears throat> and these are the words of Paul. And we get Paul's teaching on another legitimate ground for divorce. 1 Corinthians 7, 10 and 11. Paul says, for godly... Whoops, I'm in 2 Corinthians. First Corinthians 7, verse 10. To the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. So all he's saying there is that Jesus said this explicitly. I haven't said it so far. Uh, These are Jesus' words. The wife should not separate from her husband. And he's probably thinking about a text like Matthew 19, knowing that Jesus has already addressed this. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. So here's just standard teaching on divorce. It, It shouldn't happen. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on then in verse 12, and he says, to the rest, to to others, I say, and then he says, I, not the Lord. Now, don't get tripped up by that. Uh, All Paul is saying here is that Jesus didn't say these words specifically, but, but I am. But Paul is an apostle. He's been appointed by Jesus to carry forth the apostolic message. He is an inspired apostle. What he writes is just as authoritative as what Jesus said. So don't look at this and think, oh, this doesn't count because Jesus didn't say it. Paul said it, and that's authoritative upon us as Christians. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. 
If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So what Paul has in mind here is a marriage relationship where you have a believer who is married to an unbeliever. And generally speaking, what ought to happen is that situation ought to stay the same. So if you're in that situation and you're thinking, maybe I should get divorced, I'm growing in my faith, my spouse isn't even a believer, maybe I should leave, what Paul would say is, no, you need to stay in that marriage even though your spouse is an unbeliever. Stay there. Remain faithful to your spouse. But, verse 15, Paul says this, but if the unbelieving partner separates, if that unbelieving spouse leaves, let it be so. Let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. In other words, what Paul is saying is that if the unbeliever leaves the marriage, dissolves the marriage, wants a divorce, that's okay. You should let that happen. Now, what happens if the, the unbelieving spouse kind of deserts the marriage, you know, leaves and goes off, but never actually files for divorce? And now the believing spouse is just kind of left there, kind of stuck with a spouse who's not around. Can that believing spouse then file for divorce? I think the answer to that is yes. Because in that case, what the spouse is doing, the believing spouse is doing, is just asking for legal recognition, legal acknowledgement of what is already the case. The other spouse has left, has dissolved the marriage by his actions, and it'd be a little bit like unhooking life support to a person who's already dead. So to go ahead and proceed with that, I, I think, would be acceptable. So there's the second ground for legitimate divorce in the scriptures, when an unbeliever in a marriage decides to leave. So, to sum up this way, let, let, let's say it like this. If you're thinking about getting a divorce, these are some things I would say to you. First of all, never make a quick decision on a matter of this grave importance. Never make a decision in the heat of the moment when your heart is full of anger. Seek counsel, seek prayer, be careful. Even though the Bible is giving us a couple of legitimate grounds, it's not something that you should rush into. And in fact, a decision to get a divorce, even on biblical grounds, ought to be the last resort. Seeking to hold things together as best as you can, I think, is a godly and commendable thing. You know, we do have help offered for you here at the church. We have marriage enrichment groups that Frank mentioned earlier. We have mature couples here who want to help you if you're in a difficult marriage and you're thinking about getting a divorce. So reach out to us and let us help you. Let us walk with you through that and seek to help you hold that marriage together. But let me say this also. If you're thinking about getting a divorce and you're saying to yourself things like this, I think I've fallen out of love, aren't like they used to be, this isn't the man or this isn't the woman that I married, we've drifted apart, I have peace about it, I've thought a lot and I've prayed a lot about this divorce, I don't have biblical grounds but I have peace about it. My friends are telling me it's okay and they're encouraging me to get out of this marriage. None of those are legitimate reasons for divorce, according to the scriptures. 
They're not legitimate. There, there's only two given to us, sexual immorality and desertion. Now, we could talk a long time about what actually do those two categories entail, um, and that's a discussion for your life groups, and that's actually one of the questions that you'll, you'll get. Uh, but those are the two categories uh, that the Scriptures give to us. Okay, let's go into the third thing. How about the divorced person wanting to get remarried? What do we say to this person? So we, we've got you know, divorced persons in, in a number of, of situations. Let's say um, you're a person who has been married and your spouse is the one who has committed sexual immorality and, and now there's a divorce and so you're wondering if you can be remarried again. Well, if you look back at Matthew 19 now, if you look back at verse 9, again, it's kind of our key verse this morning, Verse 9 says, if I say, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another commits adultery. So the, the key phrase there is except for sexual immorality. And the question is whether that phrase, except for sexual immorality, applies to whoever divorces his wife, the phrase that precedes, or whether it also applies to the phrase that comes after, and marries another. And I think the answer is that that phrase applies to both. So that if sexual immorality is taking place in a marriage, this exception clause applies not only to the divorce, but also to marrying another, that latter phrase. So if you're in a marriage or you were in a marriage, your spouse has committed sexual immorality and a divorce has taken place, I would say you are free to remarry because of the exception clause in Matthew 19.9. It applies not just to divorce, but also to the phrase afterward, marrying another. Let's say you're in a marriage, you're the one who committed sexual immorality. Can you be remarried? Well, now it's getting a, a little more tricky, and there's differences of opinion on this issue as well. Looking at verse 9 again, notice at the end it says, and marries another, commits adultery. So if you're the one who has committed this act of sexual immorality, and perhaps you're the one who has pursued divorce in this case, and then you seek to be remarried, if you marry that other person, you're committing adultery. And so the implication here would be, if this is your situation, that your first priority ought to be to reconcile to your previous spouse, to your first spouse. You ought to seek to get that marriage going again, because that's the one technically you're still married to. Now what happens if your spouse, from whom you've been divorced, is already remarried himself or herself? <laughs> then what happens there? And I'm just going to quote from you um, the position paper from our denomination of the, the PCA, which I think sums this up pretty well. It, it says this, if remarriage in this situation has occurred, that is, you've committed sexual immorality, your spouse is remarried, then the marital union is permanently broken because your spouse is remarried. Marriage could now never occur between the parties. Reconciliation is therefore impossible and the remaining former partner is eligible to remarry. And I think there's, there's wisdom in that recommendation. How about if your spouse has deserted you? Going back to 1 Corinthians 7. 
your spouse has des deserted you, has left the marriage, and a divorce has taken place, are, are you free to remarry? Well, let me flip you back to 1 Corinthians 7, looking at verse 15. Again, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So that, that word, not enslaved, is another word that there's debate about what that actually means. If you go ahead to verse 39, you'll see that Paul says, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married. Now, these words, bound and free, are actually from the same word group as that word not enslaved in verse 15. And so it would seem that Paul has kind of the same idea in mind here, that what he's saying is that just as a wife is free to be remarried if her husband dies, so is a wife free to be married, that is, she is not enslaved, if her unbelieving spouse has left the marriage and caused a divorce. So I would say in that case, yes, your spouse has deserted you, you are free to remarry. Now, what if the spouse is a believer? Because in 1 Corinthians 7, what Paul seems to have in mind is a believer married to an unbeliever, and the unbeliever has left. Well, what if the person who's left is a believer? Then how does 1 Corinthians apply there? Well, this is where I think the church plays a very important part. Because if you're a member of a church, here's what ought to happen. Let's just say you're, you're a woman and your husband now has, has deserted the marriage and you're members of the church and your husband claims to be a believer and now he's deserted you and he's, he's, um, he's filed for divorce. Um, he has no grounds for it on any biblical uh, reason. What ought to happen is the elders ought to come forward and confront that guy and say, what are you doing? You don't have any grounds for divorce. He ought to be rebuked. He ought to be admonished. And let's say the guy says, you know, okay, I'm sorry. Yes, I confess and returns to the marriage. Good. But, but if he refuses that, will not repent, and just gets stubborn and just insists on his own way and continues to leave the marriage, and if Matthew 18 is followed and people are continually going after him, confronting him and challenging him, what Matthew 18, 17 says is that if he continues to respond and not listen to the church, that you ought to treat him as an unbeliever. His actions seem to be betraying what he professes to believe. And who knows what's going on in his heart, but as we observe from the outside, we can say this guy's acting like an unbeliever, can be treated as an unbeliever, and then 1 Corinthians 7 would apply in that situation. And so even though he's a professed believer, he's acting like an unbeliever, and that would put the deserted spouse in a position where he or she could be remarried. One last group I want to talk to here. <clears throat> the divorced person already remarried. What should that person do? You, you can imagine a person maybe thinking, well, I'm, I'm kind of convicted I'm in this new marriage, and I look back on my old marriage, and I see I've done things wrong, and I probably shouldn't have gotten divorced. Maybe I need to divorce my current wife and go back to my first wife. Would that be the right thing to do? And I think the answer to that is no. It wouldn't be the right thing to do. Just referring again to Matthew 19, 
9, what Jesus talks about is a person who gets a divorce and marries another. He says that that seems to legitimize the the second marriage, that that it's actually a marriage. It's a real marriage. It's not some aberrant relationship outside of marriage. It's a marriage, even though it's a second marriage. For someone to leave that marriage to go back to his or her first spouse would, would just be a fresh new sin, which God would never commend. Uh, so I don't think that would be the right thing to do. But if that's your situation, you are in a second marriage and you think that you have sinned in your first marriage, I think what you need to ask yourself is, have I acknowledged those sins? Have I confessed those sins? Maybe you need to go back to your first spouse and confess those sins to that person. Maybe you need to ask forgiveness from your first spouse. Um, you're already married. Maybe he or she is. You can't get back together, but you can confess your sins. You can ask for forgiveness from him or her, from your children, from anybody else who's been affected uh, by your divorce. So, you know, friends, I'm just trying to give you as many scenarios as possible. Um, With every scenario, new scenarios probably come to mind. Uh, Very complex situation. I mean, I haven't talked about a number of possible issues. What about physical abuse? You know, what about that? Um, you know, Jesus doesn't seem to mention that. It would seem to me that a person has a right to protect himself or herself. I, I don't think any spouse should remain in a situation where his or her life and safety is being threatened. At the very least, you can remove yourself from that situation by separating to protect yourself uh, and your children. But you can see, we can talk a lot about this. And again, in the life groups, I, I hope you have some fruitful discussion about this. But let me just finally just give a, a couple just exhortations here. Just one thing I want to say is, friends, divorce is not the unforgivable sin. I mean, there's a stigma attached to it, and there's shame and guilt that come along with it, but, but friends, you need to know that, that the blood of Jesus is enough to forgive whatever sin that you've committed in any past marriage or marriages. It's not the unforgivable sin. I also want you to know that here at New Life Presbyterian, this is a place for, for broken sinners who are dealing with struggling pasts, trying to move forward into the future as best as we can, obedient to Jesus. We need each other, and if you're a divorced person, you're welcome here. You have a place here. We want you here. We want to love you and walk with you. And I hope that this isn't a place where you feel shamed because of your past. God is not done with you, you should know. God is committed to you, still has a future for you, still has a place for you in his kingdom. We're going to close here by singing Mighty to Save. It's a song that uh, we've sung many times here at New Life, but it it opens like this. It says, uh, everyone needs compassion, a love that's never failing. And um, those are true words, aren't they? Everyone needs compassion, a love that's never failing. And That's something that you might not have found in your current marriage or in past marriages, a never-failing love. Promises have been broken to you. Vows have been broken to you. Friends, I just want you to know that in the gospel, there is a God who will never break his promise to you, who will never break his vows. He is committed to you for the long haul. He'll take you the way you are, forgive you, and change you and transform you into his image, no matter what your background is. That's the goodness of the gospel, and we're going to experience that 
afresh as we sing and as we come to the Lord's table here in a moment. Let's stand and sing Mighty to Save.